From KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide, this is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Taylor. Hi, Taylor. Hi, Nick. Hey, Lindsay. How are you? I'm good. My wife just bought a new bicycle. I'm great. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. That makes you happy? It does make me happy. She had a bike a long time ago. She hasn't ridden in a while, and she is tired of hearing me talk about it, so she went out and bought a new bike. It's really exciting. Wow. What happened to the old bike? Well, I lent it to a friend, and the wheels got stolen. Um, Yeah. I have some cool bike talk news. Somebody sent me a video, a YouTube video. It's called America's Most Controversial Bike Lane. And right at the beginning, the guy who made the video, it's really terrific, it's on YouTube. He throws up a logo of Bike Talk and he'd gotten the idea to do this YouTube video from listening to the show and our coverage of Valencia Street Bike Lane, the center bike lane on Valencia Yeah, that was Nick Laporte, right? Because I saw yeah. that video. It was really a good video. You know, after we had done a couple of stories on the Valencia bike lane, the center bike lane, he went and filmed the whole length of it. So you really get a bird's eye view of what the bike lane looks like and if it works and doesn't work. And you can kind of make your own mind up after you see the video. Yeah. Our first interview is Lindsay's with Amy Cohen. She and Families for Safe Streets is sponsoring a couple of bills that are in the New York Senate right now. We've had Amy on the show and covered her incredible work as an advocate in New York City. Yeah, she is the mother of Sammy, as in Sammy's Law, which was a bill to let New York City make its own speed limits, which it can't do legally now. It's set by the state capitol. And she went on a hunger strike and she's got Senate Bill S7621 to require that people who consistently violate maximum speed limits will have an intelligent speed assistance device installed in their car for at least 12 months. That's one bill to stop chronic speeders. The other is Senate Bill S6657A, which increases fees for the registration of larger and heavier motor vehicles. These are so important. I'm reading stuff on Twitter that the car bloat, they're calling it, these enormous cars and trucks are just so much more dangerous than we realize. And they wreak havoc on our roads. They tear up the roads much faster than do lighter cars. Could you imagine a drunk driver being allowed to keep driving after two or three times being arrested for drunk driving? So some of them have 300 tickets. And look, we as a society have to say that we care about speed. Speed is why people die. That is the determining factor. It's physics. To install a speed governor in the car of a speeder seems to make a lot of sense. Right. And they put speed governors on scooters. And that's just anybody. Right. Here's your interview with Amy Cohen. Welcome, Amy. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And you've been such a leader in the space of safe streets. Tell us where you think this movement is right now. You know, it's hard for me to really acknowledge that it's been 10 years since I've been fighting for safe streets. October 8th, I marked 10 years since I lost my 12-year-old son. Still hard every day, but we fight for safe streets because we don't want this to happen to anyone else. So all of us in Families for Safe Streets have lost a family member or suffered a serious injury. And 
we're a growing movement. We started in New York City. We now have chapters across the country and many individuals sharing their stories in their community to fight for change. And we're really at a crisis in the movement in terms of the huge growth in the number of people joining our horrible club. And it is really tied to two factors. It's an inability at the city, state, and federal level to really address the crisis of speeding and speed on our streets and the growth of SUVs and large vehicles and pickup trucks. It's often the only car you can buy now. There's not even sedans available. They're posing a huge challenge and danger to people, particularly outside of vehicles. I think that the speed is something that people don't fully understand. The safe system approach has three key variables, safe speeds, safe roads, and safe vehicles. And it's safe roads to design your roads in a way that promotes driving at a safe speed. But that is also coupled with what are we setting the speed limit to be on our roads so that we design around that. And we have a couple of huge barriers. Right now, the federal government still has an 85th percentile rule, which says that localities must set the speed limit based on the speed that 85% of drivers are going. So as drivers go fast, and roads get wider, they just raise the speed limit to accommodate that. Now, there was a huge push to give comments when the feds opened for comment a revision of the rule book where the 85th percentile is included. And so we are hopeful that that will change, but we are still waiting. California is ahead of the curve where you are from in that they've eliminated the 85th percentile at the state level. That's a big step forward. But fighting for safe speed limits and for roadway design to support that, it shouldn't be this hard. This past spring, I went on a 100-hour hunger strike to pass a bill named after my son that would allow New York City to have control over its speed limits and lower it to 20 on residential streets. It shouldn't take that to make change. And yet we have to go back this year and still fight for the bill. We were following your story and it was incredibly moving and you prevailed, right? They changed it, right? No, they adjourned without bringing the bill for a vote. My God. We were very close. The Speaker of the New York State Assembly embarrassingly acknowledged on the record that we had a vast majority of the votes, but there were a few holdouts. And so he didn't bring the bill to the floor for a vote. The Daily News, one of the big papers in New York, wrote an editorial really slamming him for what happened to democracy and majority rules. So we are going back this session. We have amendments that we've agreed to that will be introduced that we are hopeful it gets passed this year. What are the compromises you had to make that you think might get it over the finish line? Uh, We are agreeing that it will be just for residential streets and that there will be a six-month grace period for people not to get ticketed at that new lowered speed limit and a public education campaign to say that these changes have been made. But we have two other new things that we are pushing that we really think also will really make a difference in this crisis. So we have two bills in New York that we really think are models for the nation. Some people ignore the lower speed limit anyway. And what are you doing with those high flyers? There are hundreds of them in New York who had over 300 tickets. There are people who are just ignoring the slap on the wrist that we are providing. Now, for the vast majority of people, automated enforcement, that really works. Most people get one or two tickets and never speed again. But some people just keep ignoring it. And so we have a bill that would mandate the installation of intelligent speed assistance. 
It's a device that can be added to a car post-market, and we are modeling it after the installation of devices to prevent people from drunk driving, right? Ignition interlock. It would go through the same process. Those frequent flyers who can't seem to obey the law with the speed camera program that we have now, they would have to install intelligence speed assistance in their car so that they stop speeding. The technology is designed to actually prevent somebody from exceeding the speed limit. It makes so much sense. The second thing is we're building on something that is happening nationally across the country. There's a move to really try to disincentivize the giant vehicles on our roadways, right? We got these SUVs, we got these pickups, they have terrible visibility. They are larger and then going at the higher speeds that we are allowing, they are killing pedestrians and cyclists in record numbers. We have the highest number of people dying while cycling in New York City this year in many, many years. And it's a trend that is happening, biking, walking, rolling across the country. So this bill would have different rates of registration fees based on how heavy your vehicle is. They did it in Washington, D.C. with a very modest increase for very heavy vehicles. There's a study that just passed in California to look at changing registration fees based on the size of the vehicle. They're looking at it in Colorado as well. So it's really a national trend. And I really encourage other people to encourage their champions in their state legislature to introduce a similar bill. I mean, these are so common sense. And one of these big cars could be five times as dangerous as a small car. And at the very least, they should cover the difference in the damage that they're doing. It's just a matter of pure physics, right? We're letting cars go faster and they're bigger. And then they also have a much higher front hood. So if they do hit somebody outside of the vehicle, instead of hitting somebody on their legs, they're hitting them on their chest and crushing them to death. And with these high speeds that we are permitting, cars have a much less likelihood of being able to stop in time, right? Mm -hmm. Depending on how fast you are, that's how many more feet you need to stop your vehicle. Just a horrific combination. So these are two things that we really think can be a model for the nation and can really make a difference, right? We got to really address the people who are driving recklessly on our roadways, who are disproportionately causing harm. There's a study in New York City that shows that people who have those repeat tickets are responsible for many more deaths and injuries on our roadways. It's not a really surprising statistic, right? If you're going to drive so recklessly, at some point you're paying Russian roulette and someone's going to get hurt. In LA, people drive 70 miles an hour on streets that go by residential neighborhoods. You get trapped in your communities. You don't want to cross the street. What would you think is like the best speed and design for a street? What speed limit if we could wave a magic wand? In dense pedestrian neighborhoods where there are people walking and biking and scooting and driving, obviously you need a very different speed limit than you do on a highway or a street that does not have that kind of multimodal use traffic. The data shows 20 miles per hour is plenty in a dense multimodal use community. That's not just New York City, but those are your town centers and your communities where people are crossing the street regularly. 75 miles an hour, even on a highway ever, is always too fast. It's unnecessary. The capacity of a street is the same at 50 miles an hour as 20 miles an hour because we stagger so much more. So it's not even the argument that, oh, well, you'll get more cars through the system. Well, you won't. Right. People get to their destination two minutes faster. They're driving to speed up to the next light. 
Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for sharing all this. Any last thoughts on things that our listeners should be engaged in or thinking about or looking for? I think the biggest advice I always give to people is really just don't give up. Change should not be this hard, but sadly, we have to fight and make our voices heard to make it happen. Elevate the voices of those personally impacted in your community. Build coalitions outside the street safety movement. It is something that we are doing for Sammy's a lot more in the districts of those people who were opposed, right? You really got to reach out to the schools and the community groups and the church leaders and get other people to join us to demand safe streets. Last week, a six-year-old boy was killed at the same school that my son attended. We need those communities to stand up with us and say enough is enough. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Last night, I was biking on a street with a bike stripe, not even a full bike lane, just a bike stripe. And then all of a sudden, the bike stripe ended and I was thrown out into the lane with all the other cars and an SUV going 35 miles an hour skimmed me so close, it scared the living daylights out of me. Of course, I caught him at the next intersection and was like, dude, you scared the living daylights out of me. And he gave me a cursory, you know, you're not supposed to be on the road and split. And I think as long as we have roads like that, we're never going to get a higher mode share of bicycles on the road. So today we have an expert to help us kind of break this idea down of How do we increase mode share of bikes? What are the opportunities for that? And what are the obstacles? I want to welcome Brett Tensio-Thomas, who is the Active Transportation Coordinator for the Sydney of Costa Mesa, California. Welcome to Bike Talk. Yeah, absolutely. Really great to be here with you guys and wonderful to be on the show again. Brett, I interviewed you a couple years ago and you kind of blew my mind when we talked and you introduced me to so many new ideas and I'm just really excited to revisit them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Brett, You're speaking for yourself today. You're not speaking as a representative of the city of Costa Mesa. But I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about how do we increase the mode share of people on the road that are biking rather than in cars? Yeah, as a whole, the United States for the national household travel studies shows to be around 1%. And when you look at smaller cities in the Netherlands and along the North Sea, you find a lot of 50%. And that seems to be the highest. Wow. So the real question is, is in the United States, what is actually possible? How far can we take our mode share? Well, Well, Lindsay, this is something that you always talk about, the three types of cyclists, the 1% and then the five. And I'm telling you, my experience last night coming home in the street was a completely 1% experience. It scared the death out of me. And I can imagine that very few other cyclists would be comfortable on that road. And that's a main road with a bike stripe lane. I mean, I'll just add to that, that when I interviewed Brett a few years ago, one of the things he pointed out was that Portland and New York had gotten to, I think you said six to 8% mode share. And then for a decade, they were adding hundreds of miles of bike lanes and that 8% didn't budge. And that that lined up with Roger Geller's study that showed that there's 1% of people are fearless, I think he says, then another 7%, but one plus 7% equals 8%. It's strong and fearless, enthused and confident yeah. and interested, but concerned. Roger Geller, director of Portland Bureau of Transportation, back in the mid 2000s, 
started to think along these lines of how do we get people to ride bicycles? Who rides bicycles, right? And this was later fleshed out a little bit more by Jennifer Dill at Portland State University. And really what they were looking at is the various factors that impact riding a bicycle on a city street. A lot of it's based on attitude and political values towards modes of transportation, how people see modes of transportation, how they see themselves, their values. And then a lot of it's based on physical ability, who can actually ride a bicycle. And then a lot of it is also based on the comfort level of facilities. And that's really where we get into that. And the way he broke it down is you have strong and fearless, and that's 1% of the population. And this is folks that will ride a bicycle anywhere. They will ride a bicycle on any street. They would ride a bicycle probably on a freeway if they were allowed to, right? These are, these are people that are absolutely strong and fearless. They're absolutely ready to ride a bicycle. They'll do it anywhere. And that accounts for about 1%. Not unconsequentially that we have 1% mode share in the United States, right, for bicycles. Now, the second group that Roger Geller broke it down to is the enthused and the confident. And these are people that ride bicycles. They're enthusiastic about bicycle riding. They're confident riding bicycles. They might not necessarily ride on a freeway like that strong and fearless group, but these are folks that ride bicycles. And that group is 7%. And these are people that ride bicycles on bike lanes that we have developed throughout the United States, the type of bicycle infrastructure that we've developed. And when you look at cities like Portland, they have developed great bicycle infrastructure for United States standards, as has New York and Chicago's doing it right now. San Francisco's on its way to doing it. And most of these cities are capping out around that 8%. That's the 1% strong and fearless and the 7% enthused and confident. Now, the next group that Roger Geller talks about is the interested but concerned. And this is the largest group. This is a group in their studies accounted for about 60%. And these studies looking at behavior, attitudes towards bicycling, physical ability, comfort level in facilities, these were scientific surveys and studies, and they were surveying the population to try to figure out who was able to ride a bicycle and who wanted to ride a bicycle within that group. And that interested and concerned group made up about 60% of the population. This is a group that would like to ride a bicycle if it was safe, right? This is the group that wants to be separated from vehicles. Now, within the study, there was the last group, which is the no way, no how, and that accounted for about 32%. These are folks that either for political reasons, political values, or physical ability are simply not going to ride a bicycle on a city street. I am definitely interested but concerned. I will bike a thousand percent the minute it's safe. Historically, this is what engineers and planners have been trying to attract, is this interested and concerned group. They've been trying to get that 60%. And when you look at countries like the Netherlands with its 30% overall bicycle mode share and cities within the Netherlands like Amsterdam at 40%, cities in Denmark also at 40%, what they're really doing is they're capturing that full broad spectrum of individuals that are willing to ride a bicycle, right? So you add that 60 interested but concerned to that seven enthused and confident to the strong and fearless 1%, you get 68%. Now, when we look at mode share, we have to think about both of those items together. We have to say, who's willing to ride a bicycle? We have the strong and fearless, the enthused and confident, and the interested but concerned. And then what is actually within bicycling distance? So we have to add both that national household travel surveys of how many trips are being made within three miles. And then we have to add in who is actually willing to bike that three miles. And that's really what gives us our mode share. 50% of trips in the United States 
are three miles or less, those are bikeable trips within 20 minutes. Then we have to say, okay, well, 68% of people are willing to do that. But all of a sudden, we're at a crossroads here in the United States because of the electric bicycle. Not only is the electric bicycle making distance shorter for bicycling trips, it's making all of a sudden within six miles, I can ride a bicycle in 20 minutes to a destination that's within six miles of me, which accounts for 75% of all trips in the United States. 75% of trips are within six miles. But also, the electric bicycle is breaking down that no way, no how group. It's where it gets interesting. It's because now we have the no way, no how people that historically wouldn't ride a bike because of either physical ability or political values. And that's being turned on its head. You have the folks that would say, hey, you know what? I can never ride a bike because it's just not physically palatable for me. Now they can ride a bike. So they have to get into Roger Geller's four categories of typologies for people that would ride bicycles. Now that group is in there because now they're physically able to do it. So they may be in the strong and fearless, some of them. You might see a guy that would have never been on a bicycle, and now you'll see him on PCH with no bike lane cruising on a Z-bike, just cruising Mm -hmm. down PCH. So that changes the conversation. And then you have the political value side of it, where you have people that said, hey, you know what? Bicycling is for people that are really into the green movement. This is for environmentalists. I'm not an environmentalist. Now bicycling is cool. Bicycling is just for kids. Well, now bicycling is for adults. Bicycling is just for the weekend warrior liker crowd. Well, now I can ride a bicycle to the market and see my friends. So the electric bicycle entering the conversation completely puts on its head where bicycle mode share can go. This is so fascinating, the political. And I think you've basically framed it as people who saw it as sort of a political statement. But it turns out that they actually want a bike (laughs) if they can get past some politics there. Right. Bicycling has become cool. And now all of a sudden, the one piece missing is the infrastructure. Because even when we shoehorn in all these new folks on e-bikes into the four categories, most of them are still going to go into that 60% category of the interested but concerned. I'd love to drill down on the infrastructure. I think we can all agree. There's the 1%, right? They'll bike on a freeway. And most people want a bike and most trips are very bikeable. So what do you think is going on with the 8% been at this 8% level because that's the infrastructure that we've been building. We're not capturing that interested and confident crowd, and rightfully so. And in the United States, we're building bicycle facilities on streets with 50 mile an hour speed limit. And what that ends up is that we're building bicycle infrastructure on streets that's just a striped bike lane, maybe sometimes with a buffer, maybe sometimes just a paint itself. If you get hit while you're riding your bicycle, you have a 90% chance of severe injury. Even worse, you have a 75% chance of fatality. So where that leaves us is that 60% of the population is saying, hey, you know what? I'm really interested in bicycling. And this is, of course, according to the Portland data, I'm really interested in bicycling, but I'm quite concerned about the infrastructure because you're on a 50 mile an hour street with a piece of paint. And this is really where we're at. Well, that's exactly what happened to me the other night. And not only that, that bike stripe ended and I was thrown into the lane. And that also has happened. We're not building connections for our bike infrastructure. We're building bad bike lanes and we're not even networking them. Right, Right. exactly. It feels like there's this leap where you've got the ceiling of 8%, meaning one plus seven. And then you see this huge jump 
whether it's say it's 60% more or you tracked 90% of people bike. So is there a way to figure out, or is this just something we should all be talking about figuring out what infrastructure gets you from New York to Utrecht? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because New York is doing a great job and they're building great bicycle infrastructure and Portland built great bicycle infrastructure and continues to build it. And like we've mentioned, they're sitting at that 8%. And in order to encourage the interested but concerned, that 60% group from the Portland data, there needs to be infrastructure that allows them to never be with automobiles traveling more than 15 miles an hour. The NACTO injury and fatality data tells us that the risk of severe injury climbs to 10% at 16 miles an hour. So really what that means is that when we have arterial roads with bicycle infrastructure along it, it needs to be completely separated from any vehicle traffic that's going more than 15 miles an hour. We have great residential streets in the United States. We have many cities that have great grid systems. And if we want bicycle riders on those streets, the posted speed limit needs to be 10 or 15 miles an hour. And then we start to build a network where you as someone riding a bicycle is never with a vehicle that is going more than 15 miles an hour, because really that's what that 60% group is saying. That 60% interested but concerned group is saying, hey, I want to ride a bicycle, but I'm not going to ride it on a street with vehicles going more than 15 miles an hour. And what you said, Taylor, is a great point, is to get through the intersection as well. Because it's one thing to build great infrastructure mid-block and to keep bikes separated from vehicles that are going more than 15 miles an hour mid-block. But if at the intersection, they are all of a sudden mixing with vehicles going more than 15 miles an hour, that interested and concerned group is simply not going to ride. And that's why we're at that 8%. Whereas when I'm in Amsterdam, I am in completely separated infrastructure. When I'm on an arterial, I am never next to a vehicle on an arterial that's going more than 15 miles an hour. And when I'm on a collector street, the vehicles are only going 15 miles an hour or less. So I know that my risk of severe injury is lower than 10%. If I was in collision with a vehicle when I'm on my bicycle. And Lindsay, this is something you talk about all the time. Here in Los Angeles, we have just added some protected bike lanes along Venice Boulevard, which is a east-west arterial that goes from the beach all the way to downtown. And that infrastructure is really nice. It's protected and it's buffered. But at the intersections, it is still difficult. And Lindsay, you've said to me a couple of times that you're not going to ride on that street. And you're one of those people that if we could get the intersections safe, you then would ride on that street is what you're saying. Yeah. Brad, tell us about the intersections. First of all, how do you make them safe? The reality is, is that almost all practitioners, engineers, and planners that build streets right now, not only went to school during an automobile dominated era of infrastructure development, but they were also born into it. And philosophically, this is the way they think. Engineers and planners, for the most part, they think in a way that looks at the movement of automobiles as the number one concern and number one priority. And what that is translated into is our standards that we build roadways with are thought of in that way. So we have standards that make it very, very hard and very difficult to build bicycle infrastructure that doesn't put cars as the priority. The cars are the priority. Bicycles are looked as sort of a privilege or an afterthought. And really that translates into our intersections. It's really easy to find a roadway that's wide enough and say, hey, you know what? I can put in a buffered bike lane. And even if that buffered bike lane is not perfect, and we can talk about that, that's probably more in the 8% category, even a buffered bike lane, unless it has vertical, concrete, or some other form of physical separation where that more than 15 mile an hour vehicle is not intruding into that space. It's still an 8% piece of infrastructure. 
But if it doesn't get to the intersection, it's never going to reach that 8% level. Because at the end of the day, it's only as good as it is that goes through the intersection. Unfortunately, our standards here in the United States for roadway design make it very hard to build bicycle facilities through intersections. We still haven't caught up to that point. Can you elaborate on that? What could it look like? What should it look like? I think a lot of your listeners have seen these Dutch style interchanges, and these are really sexy in a way, and they make it so bicycles are never interacting with vehicles. But these are also very, very space intensive. Really, the key is to bring the separation of the bicycle facility all the way to the intersection and then separate the automobile mode phasing for the traffic signal from the bicycle mode phasing for the traffic signal. They need to go at separate times. And that prevents things like the concerns that a lot of engineers and planners have, such as right and vehicle turns across a bicycle facility. In this country, most cities have many, many, many spaces where there's a hundred foot wide right away. So the space is there. It's really the paradigm that needs to shift. And once that paradigm shifts, we start putting priority towards bicycles and other modes of transportation, or at least making them equal to the automobile. But our standards are still putting the automobile above the bicycle. So let me dig in on that for a second. So basically the bike is comes up to the intersection, the bike and the car are going into the intersection. How do we keep the car from making a right-hand turn into the bike lane? The right is prohibited across that until the bicycle stops. So you have a different signal for each. There's a signal for the bicycle. The bicycle signal turns red. The green signal for the car allows the right turn. In some cities, such as San Francisco, what they've started to do is they've started to prohibit rights at certain points and use mechanisms like that. Doing a super block system feels like the easiest is that you can't make a right into a residential neighborhood except very specific places so that there is no right hand turn to protect. Right. And that gets back to the group of the conversation, right? We look at streets in the United States as movement of cars. So we say, how do we get people directly to their house as fast as possible? Instead of exactly what you said right now, Lindsay, which is let's limit those right turns to certain points. Let's make it harder to drive and easier to bicycle. We can't only make cycling safer. We have to make driving a little bit more difficult, a little bit more onerous. Brett, you really tied everything up perfectly for us, and you brought together a lot of different interviews that we've been doing over the past few weeks and kind of put them all in one package for us here today. Brett Atencio Thomas, thank you very much for coming on Bike Talk and sharing all your knowledge with us. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much. He says it so clearly to me, we are building bike infrastructure, bike lanes in a city like Los Angeles for one or two percent of the population, maybe in a city like Portland or New York City, eight percent of the population. But then everyone is disappointed and drivers are angry when they don't see more people in the bike lanes because we're only building them for a very small portion of the population. Yeah, well, drivers tend to think that if they don't see people in the bike lane, that there's no reason for the bike lane. Right. And what they don't understand is there's never a traffic jam in a bike lane because bikes move right on through it. Yeah. And nobody looks at a street that doesn't have more cars on it and say that they should remove the street. <laughs> I wish they would. Like the freeway, the Marina Central Park freeway. In Los Angeles, that they're going to turn into a park, right? Well, so- the NIMBYs are already saying, save our highway, which to me is just crazy. It's like, save smoking in restaurants. Yeah. 
Well, let's hope that Streets for All has our way and turns that freeway into a park. And then we'll see what other freeways can be turned into parks. Right. So you got an interview coming up. Yeah, this is with Cotton Seiler. And Cotton wrote the book, The Republic of Drivers. And as we've been talking that we're building bike lanes for only a small percentage of the population, we built cars and sold the American population on this idea of driving, that it was power, that it was masculine, that it was capitalism, that it was individuality. And Cotton really breaks it down to, in many cases, we didn't have a choice but to drive with the National Highway Act of 1956. And here's that interview. We have a professor of American studies at Dickinson College, the author of Republic of Drivers, Cotton Seiler. Cotton, welcome to Bike Talk. Thank you so much. How did the car and driving become so vital in the identity of Americans? I think it goes back to sort of deep cultural roots in the United States, just given the founding of the United States and its particular values of individualism that sort of lead people to want to experience feelings of freedom and autonomy and independence. And in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, people stopped getting those types of feelings. And when I say people, I mean mostly men. Stop getting those feelings at work, a sense of worth, a sense of mastery over one's time, things like that. As the factory process really began to take hold, people couldn't really experience that at work anymore, especially as assembly line work becomes prevalent. And so my argument is that relatively early on, the car sort of helped produce these feelings of independence and autonomy and, of course, exhilaration, expansiveness, all of these things that we think of as sort of common to American cultural values but couldn't really be experienced in everyday life, especially in the workplace. Right. So the car, in many ways, offered this sort of compensation for those feelings. And I think that that's one of the reasons that it took hold to the degree that it did. And then by the time you get to the 1920s, the car really colonizes the cultural landscape and the actual physical landscape where you have roads just proliferating and more and more households owning cars. And right. that sort of continues. And then sort of where this project ends is in the 1950s and 1960s with the rise of the interstate system. Right, right. You talk in the book that driving gives the driver the sensation of agency, self-determination, entitlement, privacy, sovereignty, transgression, and speed. That's pretty tough to beat. Yeah, no doubt. And the funny thing is, is that a lot of the things that were imputed to the automobile People thought about bicycles in this way. In some ways, bikes are the first cars and these sort of freedom machines. And you get all kinds of cultural materials from the early 20th century that are describing driving in these terms. And it comes to sort of inform how people think of themselves, not just as drivers, but as political subjects, the freedom to move, to be autonomous, to be sort of the private sovereign of one's domain. Right. And to be things. free, right. To be free. Yeah. You know, people often don't realize that the first roads were built for bicycles. They were before cars. And just last weekend here in Los Angeles, where I live, a section of the 110 freeway was closed to cars. It was full of bikers. And I got out there and asked a few people on the road who were biking what they thought about biking on the road. And they used so many of the same words. 
a sense of freedom, a sense of speed, wind in my face, all these same kind of things. So it's really interesting yeah. how cars have sort of taken over the mantle of what bikes once were, I guess. The only thing I'd say is that now as traffic, especially at a place like Los Angeles, is so clogged, in some ways the bike sort of brings those feelings back in a way that the car can't anymore. Absolutely. So that the car took over from the bike and maybe now the bike is taking back over from the car, at least in Los Angeles. I want to pick up on on where you left off just because I found this really interesting. Also, you talk about the Highway Act of 1956 and that it was a response a little bit to the Cold War. I'm paraphrasing, but then you go on to say that at the same time, driving is a little bit of a counterbalance to capitalism. I wonder if you could talk about that. A counterbalance in some ways, but it's also in many ways the capitalist behavior par excellence, that you're sort of commuting to work and engaged in all sorts of consumption activities through the car. So if you think about how automobility really changes the landscape in the post-war era with the rise of things like shopping malls and drive-throughs and things like that. So in some ways, it's actually enabling the type of consumer capitalism that comes to characterize the late 20th and the 21st century as well. Where we just drive everywhere. Yeah. And one of the things I say late in the book is that we've constructed landscapes of compulsory automobility where you can't not drive. And we find ourselves now with this built environment geared around the car. Talk to my students about it and my generation and older people, too. The car meant everything. Getting the driver's license meant sort of becoming free and becoming a person in full. And people my students' age don't feel like that. And in many ways, they're starting to experience automobility as a drag on their freedom and their mobility. And I think that's a really interesting cultural shift because we still have this built environment dedicated to automobility, but the charm is completely worn off. Right. And in fact, especially in the suburbs, traffic is snarled everywhere and it just doesn't have the same appeal. It doesn't deliver the same goods that it used to. And I see it in my students who their mobility comes about through technology. Used to be if you wanted to hang out with your friends, you had to get in the car and drive. But now it's sort of like all that stuff can happen virtually. Right. And also with climate change, my students see automobility and car ownership as detrimental, as something that is actually imperiling their futures. Right. So it's a sea change in how people are thinking about the car and about driving. It makes us feel that there's hope for the future. Yeah. You don't sound convinced. <laughs> I think our political system and the people who are currently empowered to make decisions about things like infrastructure are so beholden to the automobile that they think that, oh, well, autonomous cars, that's the panacea. Or electric cars, that's the panacea. And I think what it calls for is re-envisioning of what our built environment and our patterns of work and residence and consumption and play. What we really need is a complete rethinking of that. And right. it's very difficult when I look around to see any sort of utopian futurity that actually has traction right now. So I'm with you. I have a lot of hope invested in younger people, but I find our politics really hidebound and absolutely dominated by the car. Right. 
I'm sure you've heard of 15-minute cities and the movement to reimagine cities back how they were before World War II or before the car when everything you needed was within a 15-minute walk. But there's even a pushback against 15-minute cities that it's government overtake or whatever. How do you feel about that? How do you feel that we're going to get out of that? Can we get back to an era of 15-minute cities? I think 15-minute cities are a great idea. I personally would like to live in one. I see it as the way forward in all kinds of ways in terms of carbon footprint and also just quality of life. But yeah, there are political forces pushing back against the world that isn't dominated by the car or maybe by the truck, (laughs) the pickup truck or something like that. Some people are going to feel that as an impingement on their freedom to do what they want and go where they want as fast as they want and consuming as many resources as they want. And I think that's sort of a drag on progress. And the other drag on progress in terms of actually generating 15-minute cities across the country is infrastructure. The infrastructure of cities has been crumbling since the 1970s, essentially. They talked about an infrastructure crisis in the 1970s that's only gotten worse. And the new infrastructure bill is a partial fix, but a lot more needs to be done if we're going to equip these cities for people to return to them in the numbers that used to be. We're going to have to invest a lot more in infrastructure. And that's also something that is a non-starter for certain political forces. Well, do you think it is a left-right issue? Are the left for bicycles and the right for trucks? Is it that simple? I don't think it's quite that simple. I do think that a specific performative masculinity has become kind of part of the mobility culture of the right that I do see in sort of the growth in enormous sort of militarized trucks. Right. And they're also the best-selling car, I think. And the most profitable, right? Yeah, the most profitable. And I think Ford no longer really makes cars, maybe the Ford Mustang, but I think Ford produces trucks almost exclusively. So I do see that as sort of a don't take my truck (laughs) type of mentality. That's sort of shorthand for a lot of political attitudes that I do think is about the particular masculinity that feels threatened by a change and the communalism that you might find in walkable cities and things like that. But at the same time, I think The arguments need to be made to people on the right that this will actually be good for the economy. This will be, in many ways, liberating. There's nothing people on the right say they love more than freedom. Right. Actually, if you want to free yourself from the patterns of the expense of automobility, the dangers of automobility, the inconvenience and the headache of automobility, this will actually be something that will benefit everyone. It's freedom of choice. Yeah. I don't think we're going to get away from cars anytime soon. And that's okay. I think it's sort of going to be a phase out. I think that especially in the United States, any government mandate that lowers the boom on automobility is going to be a political non-starter. So I think there will be a phase out, but there also has to be a phase in of the infrastructures for cycling and pedestrianism and rapid transit and light rail and all that stuff. That has to come in too. I see less of those initiatives being politically viable at the moment. But I think politically, people do understand that the growth of automobility can't continue. You can't keep adding lanes to freeways and expect that that's going to solve the problem. 
Right. What's the quote by Albert Einstein? You can't fix the problem with the same thinking that got you in the problem. Right. Something like that. I think that the media doesn't help. There's some examples of where the people that drive the truck on commercials and or films and TV are big, strong people and people that ride bikes. I'm thinking of the 40-year-old virgin or something like that are weak. I think that needs to change also so we can start to move the public's mindset away from this idea that the bigger the grill on your truck, the more manly you are and you're a sissy or something if you're riding a bike. Yeah, I agree with that. I think representations are really important. At the same time, sort of media goes with what sells. Right. And those commercials, it's always the truck sort of climbing some mountain or something like that. Not but stuck the, in traffic. <laughs> yeah, the reality is that we're mostly in traffic. Because what those commercials are really sort of testifying to is purchase this product, use this product, and you will be free and you will be empowered and you will be manly and all of those things. And I think that that soul, that message resonates. Right. And I think sort of crafting a message that actually, no, if you purchase this, you're going to be saddled with all kinds of hassles and it actually will disempower you in a lot of ways. Once that message starts to gain traction, and I actually do think that that's more the reality of the situation, then maybe we'll start to see the needle move. Well, it sounds like it is a little bit just with your students and things like that. And I have two kids and they both drive, but they don't own cars yet. And I would like to keep them from owning cars for as long as possible. And I guess we'll see. The book was published in 2008. What has changed? What would you add to the book now, 15 years later? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm actually just coming back from Korea, a mobility studies conference there, and talking to people who teach the book or who have used the book in their research. And I think the biggest thing is that between 2008 and now, it's become clearer to me, and I think a lot of other people, that this is not a sustainable way of life. And that the sort of politics of driving predicated on feelings of freedom and agency, those are no longer really there. It's almost like this sort of manic drumming them up by advertisers and the auto industry. But everybody knows now it's beyond the writing is on the wall. It's like the writing is on the page now that something's got to give, that the system of automobility is broken and it's actually diminishing our quality of life in a lot of ways. It's been really heartening to see freeways coming down in various American cities and people rethinking that we live in Baltimore and the sort of highway to nowhere. That's a really interesting new development where people are trying to address mobility, infrastructure, racism. Right. So there's been a lot of developments that I think are really beneficial. And I think the consciousness of automobility as running out of time in terms of a way of living the other thing that I'll add is that there's also some sort of nostalgia in me for the 1950s in which the state stepped in and said, you know what, we're going to give everybody this amazing infrastructure and we're going to do it because we believe in the people, we believe in the population, and we are going to deliver to that population something that is going to enable better lives. That's going to enable them to do what they want, to be freer, to enrich themselves in all kinds of ways. And so I think there's a nostalgia in me. I wasn't alive in the 50s, but I do have this sort of envy of the idea of a state that is really 
interested in provisioning people with superb infrastructure and having that be part of sort of national pride and national mission. So that's something that in my new book, which is about infrastructure and population and race, I'm really trying to think about sort of how we get to a place where we come together as a collective to demand all of the good things that can be provided only by a state, right? only by the government, because the government is the only entity with the authority and the deep pockets to be able to produce something that is going to be available democratically to all users. I was just in Korea, my wife and I were in Japan this summer, and to see the infrastructure provision of those governments, it's really remarkable. It really sort of empowers people to come together. The Japanese government just put in a new bullet train line to Kyushu with the reasoning that, well, a lot of people are aging in Kyushu and a lot of their family members are on Honshu or other islands. We need those people to be able to go home to see their parents. In 1950s America, there was a sense of care for the population that delivered really great infrastructure. Of course, that population was imagined as a white population. Right. And so as the United States grows more multiracial and demographically diverse, the challenge is then how do we sustain a public that is provided with the very best infrastructure that can be provided? Wow. What's the title of your new book? It's called White Care, Race and Infrastructure in the United States. I didn't see it when I looked. Is it out yet? Is it out now? No, no, I'm oh. finishing it at the oh, moment. Okay, good. It's way overdue to my publisher. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, it's the next book on my list. I don't think I said this while we were recording, but the idea of interviewing you and talking about your book came from a listener. And when we got the email, one of the guys on our staff, Rick Reisenberg, said, this is an amazing book. And now two people on our staff, Rick and me, also think it's an amazing book. Cotton Seiler, The Republic of Drivers, A Cultural History of Automobility in America. It's a fascinating read. We covered, what, one-tenth of the book? I hate to end our talk now. Tell me, what do you teach? Most of my teaching at Dickinson concerns race and racial politics in some way. And we've really learned how the road did that. I think that's an issue that I wasn't even aware of as a child, that the highways went through neighborhoods of color and really destroyed many of those neighborhoods. I just saw it as a highway. And so I am waking up to this finally. Yeah, I think thanks to activists and thanks to media and scholars, I think we're getting the sense that these infrastructures they divided people as well, and they disempowered people. Right. And hopefully in the future, we'll see some sort of restitution of that. Right. Well, Cotton Siler, thanks very much for your time and for coming on Bike Talk. I look forward to your next book. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, Nick, I want to thank our guests today, Amy Cohen, Brett Antincio Thomas, and Cotton Siler. Yeah, good guests. And if you like the show, like us on social media. It really means a lot to us. It really helps us know who's listening and how many people are listening. And if you have a question or a question for a mechanic, put that on at biketalk.org. And if you have a mechanic question or a question or an idea for the show, reach out to us at biketalk.org and you can leave a comment or a question there. Take us out with a quote, Taylor. Every time I see an adult on a bicycle... I no longer despair for the future of the human race. H.G. Wells. Very good. Be safe out there.
This episode of Bike Talk is sponsored by the law offices of Pokras and De Los Reyes, with offices in Los Angeles and Bakersfield, and serving all of Southern California. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Oh, catch yourself a bike.